0: Well, uh, we're back in Judges again this week. Uh, if you've been with us, uh, Judges is a book in the Old If you have been with us, the book, Judges is a book in the Old Testament. Uh, you may have been around church for a long time, uh, and Judges being in the Bible is news to you. Uh, uh, the church has to give a lot of attention to it uh, because it, it, it's kind of gory. Um, uh, it's really straightforward. I think the reason that we don't do it is because it's gory as much as uh, we see too much of ourselves in them. And we, it's easier to avoid. Uh, but we want to face this head-on. And uh, the way we saw it is that we see a cycle in the book of Judges where uh, the people rebel. Uh, God and his discipline uh, gives them retribution for their sin to kind of snap them out of their idolatry. Uh, and then they, they repent. It's usually very shallow, but there's some level of repentance. And finally God sends a rescuer. He sends a, a person, or last week, a team of three people uh, to get the people out of their oppression. And... Uh, The first week we saw Othniel. Uh, Othniel is kind of like the the paradigm, the good paradigm. It was very clean. Uh, Last week wasn't so clean uh, with Deborah and Barak and Jael. Uh, And then this week, uh, it's not going to be clean at all. Uh, Gideon is a mess. Uh, We've got a couple more weeks with Gideon. Uh, but you're going to see that the, the nation's spiritual health just isn't going through cycles. It's a downward cycle. In other words, it's a, they're spiraling out of control. And God uses even messed up leaders like Gideon to save his people. Uh, that's really the message of Judges. Uh, so before we get started, let's pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, you uh, did not uh, just throw us... Um, out into the dark, uh, but Lord, you uh, gave us light for the path in your word. Lord, you showed us in your word what you're like, what we're like, and what the world's like. Uh, So I I pray that you would not just uh, tickle our curiosity, uh, Lord, that you wouldn't just um, make our uh, ears twinge, but Lord, that you would pierce our hearts. Uh, Lord, that you would apply your grace. Uh, Do this uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit, even now. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Uh, so tonight in Gideon, uh, what you'll see is uh, how to make a decision, or really how not to make a decision. And we make decisions every day. I mean, today, I had to make the decision, do I want uh, a glazed donut or a cream-filled donut? Uh, tomorrow, I am going to, th- to make the decision I make lots of days, am I going to do Athenian Grill or Bourbon and Toulouse? Uh, we have taco Night Neighborhood Group, am I going to do soft shell or hard shell? Uh, Now we are, we're always making these kinds of decisions. For me, the big ones are around food. Uh, And uh, I feel like a lot of the big decisions in my life have sort of been made. Uh, There are some big ones coming down the pipe, but when you're in your 20s, it's big decisions central in your 20s. Uh, you probably got uh, some decisions about marriage. you probably got some decisions about where to go to school. Uh, You've probably got decisions on where you're gonna live. You've got decisions about what church are you gonna end up at. These are all big decisions. So how do we make those decisions? Years ago, um, I was, when I was on campus uh, with a ministry called Young Life doing college ministry, uh, there was a freshman I was getting to know. And this freshman, like all other college freshmen, was having a rough time. Uh, if you ever meet a college freshman in your life, if, if, even if you, you birth one, uh, they, they, they get to 18 or 19 and they happen to go to college, uh, you'll find out that they're going to have a hard year. Uh, you can look back to your freshman year or when you were 18 or 19 and say, that was a tough year. Um, this person was no different. This person was from out of state. Uh, they were far from family, uh, had a difficult path of, uh, of, of studies. Uh, they lived with a complete stranger. Uh, and most importantly, they were away from their girlfriend. And, um, and so, the, so the, the first semester was coming to an end, and, uh, and he was expressing interest in uh, transferring back closer to home. And I uh, said, Man, I'd love to pray with you about that. So we were praying about it, talking about it. And he comes to one of our times together, and he goes, You won't believe it, man. I know exactly what I'm going to do, I'm going to transfer. And I was like, wow, that's pretty abrupt. Uh, so what happened? He said, I got a sign. He said, I was praying about this when I was walking here to meet you, and somebody was wearing a hooded sweatshirt with a college logo that I'm thinking about transferring to. That's a sign. I'm going to do it. And I was like, man, that's not a good idea.
1: <laughs>
0: but is that how we get signs? You know, even right now, holding Lydia, every time I hold a baby, I think, hey, could we have another one? Is that a sign because I hold a baby, does that mean we need to have another baby? But isn't this the way we think about making decisions? Um, Frequently, uh, Christians, we've looked for signs, whether in the form of holding a baby or in a college logo sweatshirt. Uh, We use this language of opening a door and closing a door, of reading the tea leaves of God's God's, uh, will for our life to make a decision that somehow he's hidden it from us and we have to find ways for him to disclose it to us. And Judges 6, verses 36 to 40 is a passage that's frequently referred to of how we are to make decisions Christianly. So let's read it together. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. And if there's dew on the fleece alone, and it's dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning, he squeezed the fleece. He wrung the dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test you once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Uh, so what I want to look at today, my three points are really uh, Gideon's call, Gideon's faith, Gideon's God. Call, faith, God. Those are my points. Gideon's call. You don't really see the call, because uh, I need to summarize verses 1 to 35 for you. Uh, in verse 1, you see the common refrain, Israel did, did what was wrong and what was evil on the side of the Lord. Cycle, the first one. You get this, the, the second part of the cycle when it says, God sends the Midianites to oppress His people. Well, the Midianites, they don't oppress in a military sense. What they do is they go in uh, and after harvest, each year, and they rob all their crops uh, from God's people. So God's people are left destitute. They're left hungry. And so what do they do? The next cycle? They cry out to the Lord. And the next part is, they send a, God sends a rescuer, and he sends this man named Gideon. Gideon. What kind of leader was Gideon? Well, he was weak. Uh, He was immature. He was not a leader with conviction. And So what God has to do over and over and over again, because this is the kind of leader he's working with, he's got to give Gideon assurances. So he gives them here just a few uh, that that happened before the text uh, that we just read. Verse 12 of chapter 6. God calls him a mighty warrior. That's an assurance. Uh, Verse 14. God says to Gideon, go in the strength that you have and save Israel. Verse 16, the Lord promises his empowering presence and his victory to Gideon. Verse 21, Gideon does the sacrificial thing and God burns it up for him as a sign. Verse 23, the Lord promises Gideon that he won't die. So over and over and over again, he's trying to assure Gideon that what he's calling him to do the guy's going to fall through. And he had a two-part task. The first part of his task was that he was supposed to raise up an army and go fight the Midianites. The second part of his task was that he's supposed to tear down, uh, t- tear down the, the, the worship structures that were set up among God's people. And before we get to verse 36, we see that Gideon actually does that. He does that second part. He goes and tears down, uh, t- tears down the worship structures uh, that, that God's people were worshiping at. But that's not enough for him. He needs even more. And that's how we get to verse 36. And in Gideon, you don't see any other judge that gets more divine assurance than him. But you also don't see anybody who displays more doubt than Gideon. Gideon the only judge to whom God directly speaks. But it just doesn't seem to have any effect on him. And after all these assurances, he still asks for a sign. So are you beginning to see your inner Gideon? Do you know what God's really clearly called you to do, but you just don't want to do it, and it's just easier to ask for a sign? I think one of those areas is when it comes to forgiveness. Uh, We don't want to forgive other people, so we do one of two things. We either take flight or we fight. We take flight because we want to avoid the conflict, not forgive the person. We don't want to engage into a a kind of confrontation and extend them love. Uh, But at the same time, we want to fight the other person. Maybe that's your response. Maybe instead of offering forgiveness, you want justice. But God's given us a third way, and it's the way of forgiveness. And it demands that we love the other person. It also demands that we take responsibility that one of the reasons for this broken relationship has something to do with me. God's clearly called us to do this in His Word over and over and over again, yet we look for a sign. And it's usually the person, who's offend- the, the person who we're offended by coming to us and begging us for mercy. Well, the Scriptures paint a totally different picture of how restoration and broken relationships happen. It's the, for the person who's been offended to offer grace to the offender. Forgiveness. I think the second part is evangelism. Uh, just like we're all in broken relationships, uh, we're all in relationships with unbelievers. Whether it's a coworker, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a classmate, maybe it's a family member. And it's intimidating to think about sharing our faith with them. Anybody who says that it's easy to share your faith is delusional. They're lying to you. But at the same time, we don't need a sign. We don't need a sign to pray for the unbeliever. We don't need a sign to share our lives with an unbeliever. And we don't need a sign to verbally proclaim the gospel to an unbeliever. But isn't that what we do? Yes, I'll share my faith with them if God real clearly tells me so. There's forgiveness, there's evangelism, and I think there's money too. Jesus talks about money more than any other subject in his teaching. And his demands seem impossible because our culture's love affair with money is so alluring to our hearts. Our hearts are hooked on money because we think the more that we spend on ourselves, the happier we're going to be. The more money that we have sitting in the account, the more secure we are. But Jesus has talked about money very differently. And many of us, we don't need a sign to make changes in how we see money. God's told us very clearly so whether it's being generous with your money, whether it's sharing your faith, whether it's offering forgiveness to someone who's wronged you, all of these require for you to believe that God's commands are good for you. They don't require a sign. So you see the call of God on your life. You see the call of God on Gideon. Now we see Gideon's faith. Um, let's go back uh, to, to our passage. You'll see, um, you'll see that he has this, this obsession with his fur rug, this fleece. Uh, it looks, and it seems like he's just throwing it in his backyard on his threshing floor. And I've heard of people doing weird things in the name of religion, but I've never heard of someone taking a fleece and throwing it in their backyard looking for dew on how to make a decision. So, what are we to make of this? Are we just to say, oh, that's weird because it's ancient, or are we just to say it's bad because it shows his folly? Um, uh, it, it does seem weird because it's ancient, but it's bad because of his folly. I'll give you five reasons. Uh, the first one is he does it twice. Gideon doesn't just ask for one sign, which God does, in fact, answer, but he asked for two. And the first sign was that the fleece alone would be wet while the ground around it would be dry. The second one is that the fleece would be dry while the ground around it would be wet. And so testing God once would be enough to qualify Gideon as a coward. But twice shows us the true condition of his heart. It's a sign of folly. The second reason I think it's a sign of folly is that all the assurances that I listed off before that happened earlier in the passage, verses 1 to 35. And if you don't read this section, we haven't, I just need you to trust me, I'm summarizing it well, Um, then you could deduce uh, that this practice of Gideon throwing a fleece wasn't all that out of order. But when you look at the multiple assurances that God gives Gideon in the context with his request for a sign in our passage, you see it's true lack of faith. The third reason is it's a pagan practice. Uh, In other ancient Near Eastern religions, uh, throwing a fleece and asking for for it to be wet was commonplace. So what we see is that Gideon, he's co-opted this pagan practice into the use of Israelite religion, and God would find it appalling. Fourth reason, in verse 39, uh, it says that Gideon was testing God. Now testing the scriptures aren't always bad. God can test you, you can test somebody else, but you can't test God. That's forbidden. That's Deuteronomy six sixteen, because what testing God does is it really is just an act of defiance, and it displeases God because it calls His goodness into question. But we have it right there, verse thirty nine, that Gideon was testing God. And the last one, this is also verse thirty nine. You see it in there. It says, "Don't." This is Gideon praying. Don't let your anger burn against me. (laughs) So Gideon knew he was doing something that should tick God off. He knows the intentions of his own heart. He knows he's insecure. He knows he's disturbingly timid. He knows he's a mess. He knows that he's one big ball of doubt. So what's Gideon doing? He's using every means necessary to get out of doing what God had called him to do. Thinking about this text, thinking about, man, what's going on beneath the surface for Gideon? Is it enough to just just kind of add an 11th commandment? Thou shalt not use fleeces uh, to determine decisions in your life? Is that the thing to do? No, I think the thing to ask is, what's going on with Gideon's heart? And if you read chapters 6, 7, and 8, what you're going to see is that, yes, Gideon is a fool but he's a fool because he's a control freak. He only does things if he's certain of how they're going to turn out. And the narrative could go very differently. It could, it could have talked about Gideon in such a way that he was afraid of what people would think about him if things didn't turn out well, but that's not it. If that was it, then his idol would be that of reputation, not control the narrative could go differently and we could see Gideon trying to recruit somebody else to take his place, maybe Jael. I mean she had the tent peg thing going maybe she could step in here and do the Midianites. That's not how the narrative goes. If that was how it went then you could say well he just wanted an easy comfortable life. But it doesn't. This insecure ball of doubt who needs assurance after assurance after assurance is a control freak. His idol is control. So, what's beneath your lack of faith? Why is it that you won't do what God has called you to do? Is it comfort? Is it reputation? Is it power? Is it control? Why are you stuck? We don't like to think like this because it's easier to address our behaviors, it's easier to address what's on the surface. And then when we do that, we never get to the root problem in our hearts. But even if you do get to the root problem in your hearts, you need more. You need the grace of God. And that's what we see in Gideon's God. Gideon's God is extremely gracious. Because what you see is a God who answers his signs. You could read, and that's why people, some people read this and say... Well, I'm just going to throw out a fleece. I, essentially what they're saying, they're, they're, they don't say that. They're not really going to throw out a fleece, but they're going, to do, they're going to essentially test God. They're going to come up with their own tests. And if God works with their circumstances in a certain uh, foreseen way, then they'll know that's how they're supposed to do something. Because if Gideon did it, why can't I? But I don't think that necessarily condones us asking for signs, just because God gives us what we gives, getting what he asked for. So there's a tension here. Gideon asked for signs out of folly, but God answers them. And I think the only way that you can resolve these two things is to say that God is exceedingly gracious with Gideon. See, not only does he not punish Gideon for his lack of faith, but he condescends to Gideon's requests. God stooped down to Gideon's level and he reassured his heart even though his heart was full of unbelief. God was patient with Gideon and his weakness. And Gideon's lack of immaturity did not restrict God's blessing of him. So this tension is resolved via grace. Doesn't this remind you of Jesus a bit? Think about what his people were asking for uh, before, he, before his incarnation. They're asking that David would, would come again, that the Messiah would come again and that he would restructure the nation the way it once was under the reign of David. Would the Messiah come and set all things right? Kick these Romans out. We're sick of being oppressed by them. And it sure looks like that God answers their prayers because the Messiah does come. But Jesus doesn't give them what they asked for. And because Jesus doesn't give them what they asked for, he comes in a totally different manner. His very own people do not receive him. But just because the people asked with wrong motivations, it didn't keep God from answering their prayer. See, Jesus is merciful. He's merciful not only because he chose to withhold punishment from us, but he's merciful to us because he condescends to us as God in the flesh. And he lived the life that we should have lived, one of complete obedience. And he died the death that we should have died, taking our debt upon him on the cross, and he rose again. He defeated sin, death, hell, and Satan by his resurrection. And friends, this is the sign that we bank our life on. It's not a fleece, it's this. We live our lives in faith to this revelation. And what our lack of bold decision, what it shows us is that we, what we want is something in the future when what God's given us is something that's in the past. He's calling for us to trust Him in the future because of what He's revealed to us in the past. But as Christians, as we look to these past events, as we move forward, we don't trust signs, we trust the gospel. It doesn't mean that nothing practical can be said about how to make a decision about job, about family, and about school. There are practical things to say. So how does God practically lead us? Well, clearly it's not through signs. See, demanding a sign, it doesn't require any work. It doesn't require any discipline. It doesn't require any character development. God's way forward is very different It feels more risky. And the clarity that signs provide take out this element of adventure. Control freaks like getting they don't do adventure. But adventure requires wisdom, not signs. And wisdom is the good sense. It's the shrewd judgment of a heart that's been trained by God been trained by his spirit. And and the spirit doesn't transcend our mental disciplines. It doesn't transcend analyzing alternatives. It doesn't transcend calculating consequences or weighing priorities or balancing pros and cons or taking and weighing evidence. The spirit works through these very ordinary means to guide us. And these means are listed all throughout the Proverbs. I'll give you three. Prayer, people, and providence prayer. Proverbs fourteen twelve says this, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. In other words, you could be very convinced that the way forward in your life is a good thing when actually you're just going to fall off the cliff. Why? It's because your heart is self-deceived. My heart is self-deceived. But when you go to God in prayer with your heart and you say, God, will you expose my motives for why this alternative that lays out into my future is very exciting or cause a lot of fear in me? And one thing that God will do is expose your motives. That's the role of prayer. Then there's people. Proverbs uh, over and over again is replete with admonitions to accept rebuke, to accept instruction, to seek guidance. And this rebuke, this guidance, this instruction that comes from God is through people. Listen to these. Proverbs ten seventeen: Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. See the difference? You can be over here, make decisions on your own, and it's going to seem right in your own eyes. But you're really a fool. But if you want to be a wise person, you listen to advice. Proverbs 15.10 says, There is a severe discipline for him who forsakes the way, and whoever hates reproof will die. So you know what we all need as we make decisions, and all of us, not just those in our 20s, are in the, are in the business of making the decisions all the time. You know what we all need? We need people in our lives. And there's two requirements for, for, for these kind of people, for your advisors. Actually, three. One is uh, that they're godly. That's easy. Um, not so easy, but um, uh, makes sense. Uh, the second one is, is that your advisors are people who are strong enough to tell you things that you may not want to hear. It's easy to have advisors that just, that, just, that just rubber stamp what you already want to do. But that's not what reproof does. That's not what instruction does. That's not what guidance is. So they have, to be strong, they have to be strong enough to tell you things you don't want to hear. And the third thing, they must have access to your life. These people must be people that you know. And none of us are exempt from needing advisors. For this is the way of wisdom. People. Third thing, providence. Providence is a fancy theological word, and here's what it means. It means the working out of God's purpose in the circumstances of the real world. The working out of God's purpose in the circumstances of the real world. See, God's not detached from his people in such a way that circumstances, feelings, and events are outside the realm of his rule. No, He's a God who's intimately acquainted with our circumstances. He's a God of real life. He's involved in our affairs. And what God wants us to do as we make decisions is that He wants us to use conversations. He wants us to use our feelings, and He wants us to use conversations. I got that mixed up. He wants us to use conversations and feelings and events to make decisions, but He doesn't want us to use conversations, feelings, and events as shortcuts because it's easy to use those as shortcuts instead of evaluating our own hearts and getting honest feedback from those around us. So, in the end, here's what God calls us all to. He calls us to a life of risk and assurance. It was a huge risk for, for, for getting to move out against the Midianites. But he was assured because of the promises that he had from God. And your life and my life doesn't look any different. But a lot of us, we just like one or the other. We like all the risk. Because if things work out our way, uh, that, that, that we, um, if things work out our way, we're kind of an adrenaline junkie. Other of us, uh, we like the assurance. We're control freaks like Gideon. And as long as we know exactly what we can do, we can live life comfortably, and when honestly, you live life even arrogantly, because it cuts out this element of faith in a God who you can't see. Friends, this is the life Jesus has called us to. A life of adventure and one of assurance. Let's pray together. Now, Father, thank you that the greatest sign uh, that we could have is right here at this table, uh, Lord. Right here, you tell us again; you're assuring our hearts again that you love us. This is your body and your blood that you have shed for sinners. And Lord, we want to put—I I put myself in that camp today. Uh, Lord, I, I would rather have a life that's just full. Of, I know exactly what's going to happen without having to live a life of adventure. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you forgive me? We pray these things in your name. Amen.